My name is Jamie Keach, and you're listening to the Resource Insider Podcast, where we talk to CEOs, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in the mining and metals industry. On this episode of the Resource Insider Podcast, I had the chance to sit down and talk with Jordan Trimble. Jordan's the president, CEO, and a director of Sky Harbor Resources, a uranium exploration company focused on the Athabasca Basin here in Canada. Now, something that is particularly interesting about Jordan is that despite being a founder of Sky Harbor and having been with the company for the past five years, he's actually only 30 years old. So this makes him one of the youngest CEOs in the mining space today. What I was really interested to talk to Jordan about uh, was because he's part of a very small group um, of what I would consider the young next generation of mining entrepreneurs focused on exploration and really making a big discovery. Now, Sky Harbor has managed to put together a very solid team with a strong track record. Uh, They've built some very valuable partnerships in the Athabasca region and they've identified some really promising targets to focus on. Jordan and I were able to talk about what led him into the mining industry. We dig a little bit into the genesis of Sky Harbor and how it started uh, and what they're doing today. And we discuss the ongoing shifts in the uranium industry at large. So this episode is really for anyone interested in exploration and discovery, anyone who wants to know more about uranium, Uh, And it's also going to be very eye-opening for any young professionals in the mining space who are wondering if they have what it takes to become an exploration-focused CEO in the future. So without further ado, let me please introduce Jordan Trimble. Jordan, welcome to the podcast today. Thanks for having me. So today I'm sitting down with Jordan Trimble who, if you don't know who that is, he is the CEO of Sky Harbor Resources. We're sitting in his office here in Vancouver, and I've come by to hear about the project, Jordan, and his thoughts on the uranium industry in general. Let's get started. So, I guess probably the best way to start um, is to tell a little bit about you. So, you've been the CEO, this is your first company that you've been the CEO of, and you've been here for five years now. How old are you now, Jordan? Just turned 30. Um, I've been running Sky Harbor since 2013. Uh, Came in um, after having worked at a gold company called Bayfield Ventures, um, which was uh, where I started my career uh, back in 2010. Uh, working with, at the time, the CEO of Bayfield Ventures, Jim Pettit, who I work with here in this office. He's the chairman of Sky Harbor. Um, it, was, uh, it was a great introductory um, role and, and job in, in this industry at Bayfield. Uh, yep. Back in 2010, I came in um, in a market, a metals market that was moving in the right direction. 2010-2011 were pretty spectacular years, as you, you probably remember. Um, we were fortunate enough at that time uh, with Bayfield. Uh, we had a, a gold project in Ontario. We were right beside um, a project called the Rainy River Project, uh, which has now actually become a mine. Um, mm-hmm. 
that new gold is uh, just put into uh, production. Uh, we had a small property right beside um, this this deposit, and uh, we were fortunate enough to find the extension of the deposit moving on to our project. And so over the course of the first few years uh, of my career uh, in this industry, um, I was able to, uh, as the corporate development manager at the company, to watch uh, an exploration company grow and thrive, and and uh, ultimately it was acquired by New Gold, and that was around yes, the same yeah. time uh, that um, I took on uh, this role here at Sky Harbor. Uh, came in, started running the company. There's a lot more to it, which we can we can get in to uh, later on in the interview if you want. But um, bottom line was that was my progression, and I, I will note, you know, I have. Uh, in the past, uh, done work with some other junior mining companies. Um, I've worked with gold companies, uh, Bayfield being one of them, uh, base metal companies, uh, and then obviously Sky Harbor, my focus uh, right now yeah. uh, as president and CEO uh, as a uranium company. So uh, I am um, and have been relatively commodity agnostic, and I can talk about how that um uh, you know, actually kind of led me, though, into Uranium and Sky yeah. Harbor. Uh, but I have, you know, worked with uh, a handful of companies uh, throughout my career. Uh, and um, Well, you yeah. you come from a science background in university, right? You Correct, You studied yeah. the sciences. So what was it that drew you specifically to the mining industry? Yeah, so I... I, I the bachelor of science from ubc and i'm um, a minor in commerce okay. and um you know my background is uh has been much more focused on the capital markets finance side um I, I i consider myself an entrepreneur that's really what makes me tick right is is building companies and um, you completed a cfa as well is that yeah, right? correct so i i after i graduated uh ubc started working in this industry so you're in vancouver you grew up here yeah mining's a huge industry yeah. You're interested in capital markets. So in a lot of ways, that's the obvious choice. Exactly. I, I started working, uh, actually, uh, while I was out at UBC, I was essentially doing an internship in the office, working with Jim uh, and the group here. Uh, my family's been in the business. Uh, and this on, is... On this is and, and capital market side for, for years as well. So this so, is Jim Pettit, who's now the chairman of Sky Harbor. Correct, is that yes. right? So yeah. you were working with him... From an early, yeah, early age. Was, yeah, Jim and I at Bayfield um, worked together closely and a few other companies that he's uh, involved with um, uh, that are all actually managed uh, in the office here, uh, in our office. And uh, so, yeah, so that was kind of my introduction to the industry. Mm -hmm. um, and there was you know, a lot that happened early on uh, in those years uh, leading up to, again, uh, me coming on and, and, and basically... Um, building what is the uh, currently the, the company Sky Harbor. Uh, at the time when I came in and, and started running Sky Harbor, um, it was really nothing more than just a, a shell, a vehicle, with a couple of legacy uh, projects in, uh, in Ontario. Um, and um, so it was looking for leadership, it was looking for um, some new life, and that's where you know we we looked long and hard we looked at a whole bunch of different projects uh in various uh different commodities all throughout the world and i really at that point honed in on the uranium space and in particular the athabasca basin uh and at the time you know as we've seen over the last few years uh but you know at that time too yeah. i really viewed it uh as and it remains to this day a you know a contrarian opportunity um yeah because Let's look at that because, <clears throat> sorry, 
This would have been about 2013, if I'm right. And at the time, much like now, uranium is arguably one of the most hated commodities in the world by a lot of people. Um, what you said, truly contrarian, where people aren't saying often that uranium's got a year or two to come back. Some people are saying uranium will never come back. Right. So you took a very contrarian view and devoted your company to discovery in the Athabasca Basin. Right. Yeah, and you know that's a, an important point um, to make would be I saw and I still see really an unprecedented opportunity, contrarian opportunity with uranium. I, I do see this as uh, the commodity you could potentially make the most money with over the next few years. Um, I, I think that uh, you know, based off of the fundamentals, based off of the historicals, the previous cycles, uh, we, we know it's a commodity that when it moves, it moves very quickly and it moves very sharply. We've, yes. seen, we've seen that in previous cycles, 06, 07, um, 2010 to, to 2011 as well. Um, and then, you know, you had Fukushima happen, you had a black swan event happen, uh, along with the broader uh, mining and metals market um, pull back. And that's what's created the opportunity. Now, when uh, we started Sky Harbor, um, you know, we came in and the first thing was to uh, build a, a team around, uh, around us that could go out and execute on the, the business plan and model, uh, which I'll talk a bit more about. Um, but getting back to the genesis of Sky Harbor, and I think this is a very, very important note, um, outside of just seeing uranium as a contrarian opportunity, what I was keenly interested in was the discovery, new discovery potential in the Athabasca Basin. Um, it didn't necessarily have to be uranium, it could have been any other metal, but what I saw was specifically in the Athabasca Basin, which is the highest grade depository of uranium in the world, the largest, richest mines there uh, in, in, in the world are in the Athabasca Basin. And this is located in Saskatchewan. Exactly, Canada. and it's located in one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world, actually ranked number two this year by the Fraser Institute. Uh, geopolitically, it is uh, arguably the best place in the world. Uh, I've worked with companies uh, that have had projects in in, in uh, various different provinces and in, in the states in the U.S. and and projects around the world. Uh, and so I can I can say on no uncertain terms, at least w with what I've seen in my career, that Saskatchewan is one of the best places to work uh, and and explore for minerals in and specifically uh, uranium. Given that you have the Athabasca Basin there. So what was the first step you took to move into the basin and to start? identifying and acquiring projects there. Yeah. So just, I, I think where we can start there is just to get back to my time at Bayfield um, and, you know, what I saw, what we did at Bayfield. Um, I saw real wealth creation in a very short period of time on the back of a high-grade discovery. Um, and then I saw the company, we, we, we uh, were able to sell the company to New Gold, um, a larger gold mining company, and they've actually now developed that project and built a mine. So I've always been um, very driven and motivated by that process. That's really our bread and butter in here, is our taken projects at the exploratory stage, going out there, um, in particular using uh, new techniques, innovative techniques and methodologies, uh, exploration uh, methods, and, and uh, applying it to projects that, um, 
you know, have had some historical exploration. They're not totally grassroots, yep. um, but there is the geological potential there for larger, higher grade deposits. Uh, and finding these, uh, making these new discoveries, finding these deposits, delineating a resource, de-risking the project, and ultimately looking to sell the project and or the company to a larger uh, mining company or maybe a state-owned enterprise, uh, any you know larger buyer that will come in and at that point look to develop and mine the project. So we we really focus our time and efforts and our expertise is in that exploratory and discovery stage. So getting to uh, the genesis of Sky Harbor and when I came in there, um, I really liked what I saw and what I see to this day in the Athabasca Basin, being able to go into a district that is proven, that is incredibly high grade, uh, where you have, uh, again, you look at Cameco, uh, MacArthur River, which as we can talk about later was just yep. shut down, but nonetheless, the largest highest grade deposit uranium in the world, Cigar Lake operating currently. Uh, and, and the Athabasca has been called the Saudi Arabia. Yes, the Saudi of Arabia uranium. of uranium, right? And it very much is. Uh, but, you know, outside of the operating mines, look at the recent discoveries that have been made. Um, you look at NextGen, you look at Fission, you look at Hathor back in 2010, 2011, 2012, which was eventually acquired by Rio Tinto in a bidding war between Rio Tinto and Cameco. These are all spectacular discoveries. Denison just made uh, a recent discovery, which is now the Griffin deposit at their Wheeler project. So you've had in, a, in the last 10 years some notable high-grade discoveries and tremendous uh, wealth creation through these discoveries. You look at NextGen having gone from a $30, $40 million market cap to almost a billion on the back of Aero. You look at Fission. You look at, uh, again, at the Griffin deposit with Denison. You look at Hathor, which was sold for yep. $650 million. So that was what really drew me in uh, in 2013 was being able to potentially make that next big discovery yeah. in the Athabasca Basin. So the Athabasca Basin, obvious place to look for uranium obvious opportunity to make a massive discovery. What were the fundamentals of uranium that drew you to that, particularly as a commodity? Why not go after gold again after the success at Bayfield or, or sure. any other commodity? At yeah. That point? So again, I'd say, you know, again, there was, there was two parts, right? There was, um, uh, uranium which we'll talk about now as a contrarian opportunity. Um, but there was also, uh, you know, the, the incredible discovery potential, uh, that the Athabasca Basin, high-grade discovery potential that the Athabasca yeah. Basin offers exploration companies. So getting back to uranium, what I saw and what I continue to see in uranium is a commodity that um, suffers through, it's hypercyclical, it suffers through uh, long droughts uh, of, of uh, you know, of a bear market we've gone through now uh, basically 2011, so seven years of a bear market in this commodity, yep. uh, in this cycle. Um, so I'd say it's getting long in the tooth on Which that basis. Arguably, been hit as bad or worse than any commodity. It, it has. It it has been. And when you look at what's caused that, uh, there's there's a number of factors. But you know, let's start with 2011 Fukushima, black swan event that you know really should not have happened it was a, one of the older reactors in japan that uh, should have been decommissioned years before the tsunami hit didn't have the basic safety measures that most reactors require um, especially ones that are on a coastline yeah. and uh, are on an active fault line um, and it was you know it really was an unfortunate disaster um, it happened nonetheless and that i think has priced itself into the market over the last uh, seven years 
that's one of the reasons uh, for sure you're seeing these depressed valuations and a low uranium price. Uh, it's 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 had an impact on the supply side uh, and, as and well. What do you mean by that pricing in the market? The risk or the or rather the perceived risk or fear Correct. that could occur. I, I think I think there's a component that's priced in uh, that's you know um, the fear. Um, that Fukushima create right. created yeah. and, and and could you know create going forward, but the reality of it is, um, you know, when you look at historically uh, the amount of electricity that's been generated by nuclear power, it's it's, it's one of the safest forms <clears throat> of electricity generation out there on a uh, terawatt hour basis per terawatt hour basis uh, deaths per terawatt hour basis. If you look at the stats, it has been one of the safest forms of electricity generation, not to mention, it is really the only base load power, CO2 free, emission free source of electricity has generated a lot of electricity for a lot of countries over the last number of decades and it will continue to do so going. Well, it still does, right? I mean, how many countries are largely dependent on nuclear power? I mean, France obviously comes to mind uh, as the primary example, but where, where else are you seeing that? Yeah, so, um, France is a, a perfect example of a developed country that has been able to really kind of drive its economy from cheap, clean electricity generated from nuclear power plants. Over 75% of the electrical grid is nuclear. Take the U.S. The U.S. is about 20% nuclear to this day. One in five homes powered by nuclear electricity. It's about 60%. Nuclear is about 60% of their CO2-free clean electricity uh, that's generated there. Um, Canada's uh, in a similar, uh, in terms of amount of nuclear electricity, about 18-19%. Uh, similar to the U.S. Globally, nuclear electricity is about 11%. Accounts for about 11% of electricity. So one in every 10 homes uh, globally is powered by nuclear power. Uh, and if you look at nuclear power, um, I think it's important to distinguish and to highlight the differences in older versus newer reactors. You have the old Gen 1 reactors, which were the Fukushima's and yep. of the yep. world, that you, you know, you've had two notable meltdowns, right? As we talk about Fukushima, but also Chernobyl, right? Three Mile Island was uh, a potential uh, disaster that didn't <coughs> actually melt down, um, the, the, the fail-safes worked there. Um, but you've had the two notable meltdowns, and you know, these are older reactors, uh, they weren't obviously as safe, um, and that was a big part of the reason that you had these uh, disasters and meltdowns ensue. But if you look at the new reactors that are being built, the Gen 3 reactors, uh, they're much safer, they're much larger, they consume a lot more uranium. So if you look at the average Gen 1 reactor, uh, it, it, the electrical output is much lower than the average Gen 3 reactor. It consumes um, let's say three to 400,000 pounds on average per year in a Gen 1 reactor. Well, some of these new Gen 3 reactors are consuming five to 700,000 pounds of uranium annually. And that's just on an annual basis. To yeah. actually get these reactors started, these new Gen 3 reactors, 57 of which under construction today, a third of those in China alone. So 57 currently under construction. Under this construction. is not like... No. Beginning the permitting process, 25 years out, they are currently and being built. Under construction, in uh, going to be generating electricity, operating within the next five years, right? Okay. So you have a significant number of new reactors uh, and larger new Gen 3 reactors that consume more uranium coming online in the next few years. 
you have just under 450 uh, operating reactors globally. So you have a significant number of reactors that are currently operating, that are consuming uranium on an annual basis, and that's slated to grow at a steady clip. Sorry, so how many are currently? Uh, just under 450. 450, plus another 25 coming on right now. Uh, it's 57. 57. Under construction, right? Yeah. Right, And yeah. then you have hundreds more that are in the pipeline. They're either planned, proposed, or ordered. So this perception that a lot of people have that nuclear power is dead, you know, it's not safe anymore, and that this this gap, this one in 10 households, is going to start being powered by green energy or something like that, it's it's not an immediate reality. It's not something that's going to be happening in the next year or the next five years or likely the next 25 years. So there's a huge portion uh, of the world that's reliant on this power. And right now, I mean, maybe you can give us a bit of background on this, but how much does it cost to produce a pound of nuclear or of uranium, uranium. on average? Yeah, so... Um on average globally, if yes. you look at the cost curve, um, the average global cost is, all-in cost is over $40 a pound, right? And what is the spot price right now? The spot price is just over 20 about $22 a pound. The lowest cost producing mine all-in, the mine in Kazakhstan, uh, ISR mine, that uh, is break-even at about $22, $22.50 uh, a pound. So at the current spot price, you have literally no projects that are making any meaningful amount of money. The, the price needed to incentivize. Now, when I talk about the average all-in cost, um, mining cost, uh, that's referring to current operations. That's referring to mines that are producing today. To incentivize new mine builds, to bring on new supply to meet growing demand, current and growing demand uh, for, from nuclear reactors, you need 55 to $60 uranium. That's the long-term price forecast. A lot of analysts that cover the sector have 50 to $60 uranium because that's what you need to actually bring, bring new production online to meet that growing demand. Okay, so I just want to take a pause right here for sure. a second. So we are very bullish on uranium uh, at Capitalist Exploits. And a lot of people call that an extremely contrarian play. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make any sense to me. Um, we're currently producing something and selling it for half the price. That's not right. contrarian, right? So either one of two things is going to happen. Either the price of uranium goes up. Or the lights go out. In one in ten houses. Yeah. That's a, I mean, that's like that's just math. Yeah. That's simple math. Uh, so it's not contrary. It's not even really speculative. Yeah, and and you know just a couple uh, quick notes before we move on to uh, specifically the, the the supply demand of uranium. Getting back to the nuclear industry, um, you know there is a lot of misinformation out there. There is a lot of bears right that talk yep. about the nuclear industry in decline. But the reality of it is when you look at um, where the largest population centers are globally and where you need cheap, clean, affordable, uh, safe baseload power. It's not in the US or Western Europe or the developed world. It's in the developing world. It's in China. It's in right. India. It's in the Middle East. It's in Africa. It's in South America. And these are the places that are moving to nuclear. Again, you look at the real driver and the growth in demand over the coming years. A third of that right now is in China. You have India that's building more nuclear power plants. You've had a number of countries in the Middle East. Just look at Saudi Arabia, for example. Saudi okay. Arabia has announced just recently 
uh, looking to invest, uh, going to be uh, building um, up to 16 nuclear power plants, investing tens of billions of dollars into their nuclear industry. Here is the oil and solar capital of the world looking to go nuclear. Now they are making big uh, moves in the solar and uh, renewable energy space as well. But I think a, an important point here with the nuclear industry that I want to emphasize is it's not, it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive with right. renewable energy. The way to look at it is if we want, take the Paris Climate uh, Agreement, right? We want to keep the global temperature from rising two degrees Celsius uh, in, call it the next uh, 50 to 100 years, right? Okay. So to do that, we need to obviously curb our emissions. A big part of that is making sure we have clean uh, electrical uh, electricity generation uh, and uh, green energy. But if you run the models, and they did, they've done this, right? If you run the models, nuclear has to play an important part of that along with renewables. Right. Well, it's so, basically the stopgap for the next 50 years until renewables catch up to a point where they can fill that for absolutely and, and those commitments exactly and i view it as um, a good partner with renewable companies when you look at electrical grids when you look at the energy matrix of a com of a country you want to have it's like an investment portfolio you want to have diversity one of the things that gets overlooked uh, or a couple things that get overlooked with nuclear power um, apart from the fact that it is baseload co2 free source of electricity it provides grid and price stability, um, and it also anchors the local community with jobs, tax base. It's a big industry in a lot of places. Getting back to price stability, and this is an important part, nuclear can generate electricity at a high capacity 24-7. It's baseload power. Right. But price stability is an interesting point. When you look at a natural, other baseload sources of electricity, and these are obviously CO2-emitting sources of electricity, natural gas and coal, when you look at natural gas and coal, which still account for uh, a very large portion of electricity generation globally, right? Uh, when you look at those, if the price of natural gas is volatile or the price of coal is volatile, that has a big impact on the utilities companies running those power plants. They do not want to see price volatility in those commodities. Right. The price of coal goes way up or the price of natural gas goes way up, right? You see that have a significant impact on those utilities. Uranium as the fuel for nuclear power, and this is a very important point, accounts for less than 5% of the cost of a nuclear power plant. So the power, these utility companies are not as price sensitive, right, when it comes right. to fueling their power plants. They will continue to buy uranium, whether it's trading at $20 a pound, $50 a pound, or $100 a pound. And that's one of the reasons you get these quick spikes spike ups because the market it's exacerbated by the price and sensitivity with utilities and fuel buyers they need they need long-term secure supply of uranium and they typically lock in those prices on 10-year contracts Correct. or so right yeah. and you know talking so, about the spot versus the long-term sorry you no no please keep yeah. going so you know i won't spend too much time on it um i i think uh i i know you, you guys have talked about it in the past but you have you know, effectively two markets are pricing um, uh, for uranium. You yeah. have a spot market, which is really what drives um, equity valuations, at least in the short term. Um, and it's uh, it's what we see on a day-to-day. -day. It's typically what the stocks will trade off on a day-to-day. -day. The spot market is a relatively small market. Um, it's been larger in the last few years, but historically it accounts for usually about 
10 to 20% at most of the volume traded, your uh, volume of uranium traded on an annual basis. And it's, it, it, it's, it's volatile, right? And we've seen it pull back from a price of, well, in 2007, at the peak of the uranium market, it was trading at almost $140 a pound. We saw it get down to uh, about $40 a pound in the financial crisis, 2008, 2009. Uh, so again, double where it is currently today. Yeah. And then we saw it move back up in 2011 to about $70 a pound. And since then, it's declined all the way down into the low 20s. So that kind of brings me to my next question. And you mentioned earlier there are a lot of bears in the uranium market. Mm -hmm. To play the devil's advocate a little, what is the what is the biggest concern you hear on a regular basis from these bears? Why do people not like uranium? Yeah, so um, that's a good segue into the supply side uh, of uranium, the uranium market. It really, a lot of it does have to do with, with supply. Um, and... You know, when we look at what's happened in the uranium market over the last uh, 10 years in particular, uh, and, and the, the last seven years since Fukushima, you have had a supply gut. You've had, uh, you've had secondary supply that's hit the market uh, from a number of sources. Um, uh, underfeeding has been one. Uh, excess supply and inventories at utilities companies. You look at Japan, for example, they shut down their nuclear reactors post-Fukushima, uh, and there's been excess supply coming out of Japan uh, and a few other countries. So uh, these these secondary sources, these are things like coming out of Japan yeah, or recycling... The energy in the U.S. has been a big source of uh, secondary supply. Uh, and that's... And how does that work? Have they, yeah, so they over-purchased uranium in the past and they're selling it back into the market, or how does that go? So uranium is now one of the 35 critical uh, minerals in the u.s right okay. the Trump administration just came out with uh, the list of these 35 minerals uh, of domestic strategic importance right uranium is one of those um, historically the department of energy has been required to maintain inventories of uranium for nuclear reactors and right. utilities in the u.s right that's been mandated by the government uh, the obama administration got rid of a rule, a policy they had in place that restricted how much uranium they could sell from their inventories into the spot market. So they were limited. They could only sell up to 10% of the annual demand in the U.S., which so in the U.S. there's about, um, it requires, there's about 100 reactors. Uh, the consumption, there's about 50 million pounds of uranium on an annual basis. So they were only allowed to sell from their inventories up to 10%, so call it 5 million pounds. Well, when they got rid of that, the Department of Energy started hitting the spot market with excess inventory. They were selling into the spot market. And as I just mentioned, the spot market is a small part of the market that uranium's traded on. Right. Most uranium's traded through these long-term contracts directly between <clears throat> mining companies and utilities companies with the fuel buyers at the utilities companies, right? So all of a sudden you had this excess secondary supply from the Department of Energy uh, that started hitting uh, the spot market, and that was happening over the last several years. And that was one of the the other. That was one of the sources of the secondary supply that caused the price, in particular, in the last few years, to to plummet. Now we've since seen a reversal with Trump and uh, Trump administration coming in. We've seen a reversal of that. So you will not see the Department of Energy selling as much of its uranium inventories into the market, and that's a good thing, right? These this is a strategic metal. When one in every five houses is powered by this metal, and you do not, that's another very important point. The U.S. does not produce much uranium at all domestically. 
Uh, this year it's going to be, I believe, less than a million pounds. So that's less than, that. they only produce, think about that, they produce less than 3%, less than 2% of their annual consumption. They have to import significant amounts of uranium. So that kind of leads us into the idea of that uranium is not like most metals. There are, given its nuclear connection, there are political implications involved yeah. with uh, exporting, importing, buying and selling uranium. How does that fit into this? Yeah, and you know, that's a great point. It's a very political metal. Uh, it ha always has been. Um, that, that's important when you look at, um, when you look at the supply side and getting back to you know, the abundance of, of, of bears, uh, and I really do think the, the bear narrative is long, long in the tooth uh, for a number of reasons. But one of the things, you know, they talk about this excess supply that's out there. That supply isn't necessarily readily available or accessible to utilities that need it, right? And that comes back to the politics. A U.S. utility isn't going to be able to buy from a Chinese from Chinese inventories or Kazakh inventories or certain inventories around this excess supply that's out there. They're not necessarily going to be able to just simply go and buy that tomorrow and then magically insert it into the fuel as a fuel into one of their nuclear reactors the day after. You, you know, a lot of people forget or don't know the process from mining uranium, yellow cake, processing and fabricating the fuel, uh, enriching the fuel, which is takes from you know we, what we mine, what miners mine is yellow cake, and that's the raw product that then has to be enriched, converted and enriched into nuclear fuel, then that's loaded into the nuclear power plant. That conversion, enrichment, uh, and fuel fabrication process takes about a year and a half to two years. So if you need uranium, if you, sorry, if you need nuclear fuel so for a reactor. To make you, that clear, from the moment the rock comes out of the ground till it's in a state where it can go into a nuclear power plant, that is a two-year process? The, the moment, not the moment the rock comes out of the ground, the moment that you have the final product from a mine, right? Oh, really? Yellow cake, U308. Yep. From that, a drum, let's say, of yellow cake, one drum of yellow cake is equivalent to 60,000 barrels of oil in energy equivalents, by the way. But to get that yellow cake to usable nuclear fuel in a nuclear reactor, that process takes about a year and a half to two years. And that's another uh, side note here is the enrichment process and that fabric fuel fabrication process, there's a bottleneck there. And that's where it really gets interesting from a political standpoint because you simply do not have the capacity in the Western world to enrich fuel. There's been shutdowns of these facilities uh, recently in the US. Uh, if you look at the current status out there right now, uh, you have Russia with basically a stranglehold on these enrichment facilities globally. So this is gonna become the political aspect of this commodity is gonna, I think, become a bigger and bigger issue. It's gonna get more attention. We're already starting to see it. One of the big developments recently and one of the reasons you're seeing the spot price starting to tick up, right, over the last uh, month, uh, two months here, um, is because you've now had a bill ratified in the Russian government, uh, in the Duma, uh, that is potentially going to ban imports into the U.S. uranium from Russia and in all likelihood Russian-influenced countries being Uzbekistan and more importantly Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan is the largest producer of uranium globally, over 40% of primary mine supply. 
the U.S. has to import 42% of its uranium on an annual basis for its nuclear reactors from those three countries, Russia, Uzbekistan, and Kazakhstan. So if you get those that are now offline, that's that's almost one in every 10 homes in the U.S., right? Yeah. Almost one in 10 in every, uh, one in 10 homes in the U.S. that will not have uranium for the nuclear power plants that generate the electricity for the for the house. And so this is probably part of the reason you see these big price swings, right? Because when people need uranium, they need it badly. And there's that two-year delay period. They can't just, you know, they can't just flip the switch and have it there. Yeah, they can't absolutely. just turn on the shovel and start mining more yeah. just like that. And, and look, there's there's that's one of them. Um, the utilities being relatively price insensitive right. is another one. Um, the lead times, lead times to building mines, right? Uh, this is uh, something that I, I want to highlight too. These are some of the toughest, most technical, uh, trickiest mines to develop and permit. It can take right. a long time, especially in the developed world. Um, and so, yes, absolutely, you do see uh, these um, real uh, price swings created by a market that is relatively inefficient. It's real tough to, you get these excess supply periods as we've been in, but that's usually followed by periods where you simply have not had really any new meaningful supply come online or plan to come online in the next five years uh, because of the low price environment. Uh, in fact, you've had the opposite happen. You've had a lot of mines shut down, uh, production curtailment, uh, and we have growing demand, current and growing demand, right? Uh, that will require, I mean, you look at the numbers, right? Uh, uh, current demand of about 190 million pounds annually growing. Yep. Uh, and primary mine supply with the recent cutbacks at MacArthur in, and in Kazakhstan, you're looking at about a 125 to 130 million pounds of primary mine supply. And so we're that, seeing potential limitations where we can purchase from outside of North America. Absolutely, yeah. And so the secondary supply, which meets that shortfall, uh, is, you know, that's the big question here, right? Is that going to be able to continue meeting that shortfall? You look at a lot of analysts and a lot of people that know the space well, their forecasts, a lot of people uh, are saying this is going to be, 2018 will be the first year in a decade uh, where you'll have a supply deficit. Right. Okay. And that kind of brings us full circle to if the United States is unable to easily import uh, uranium from the Kazakhstans of the world, from the potentially Russian-influenced countries, fortunately they have the Athabasca Basin almost on their doorstep. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, that's, uh, there, there's, you know, I'll note that you have a, a handful of uh, uranium companies in the U.S., um, a mm -hmm. couple of smaller producers there. Uh, but where will you get long-term, safe, secure supply of a lot of uranium? Uh, if you're the U.S., it's going to be, you know, not just domestically, it's going to be Canada as well. And here you have, as I talked about earlier, uh, the, the largest, highest-grade depository, low-cost, uh, good geopolitics, uh, uh, good jurisdiction, mining jurisdiction. It's right on the doorstep. It and it and it has been historically uh, a source, uh, significant source of uranium for the U.S. Uh, both the nuclear power plants and then previously nuclear uh, weapons as well. Right. Okay. So the major players right now operating in the Athabasca Basin, they include Cameco, which makes up about half the publicly traded market cap at, I 
think it's five or six billion dollars. And then we have Next Gen, which is, uh, I guess, probably the premier discovery right now, which makes up approximately a billion dollars. And then we have the rest of the market, which is somewhere between four or five billion dollars. This is probably made up of less than what twenty companies. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I mean, when you look at the number of publicly listed uranium companies uh, in two thousand seven, you had over five hundred uh, publicly listed uranium companies. That's decreased to less than forty. Uh, in and if you if you're to go through them and and. Um, Go through which ones are actually active. Uh, it's even the numbers even lower. That's I think one of the most telling uh, things here is when you have a combined market capitalization of call it, you know, just over ten billion dollars U.S. with all of the combined companies, uh, mining companies and junior mining companies out there. I mean, that's a fraction of the market cap of some of the largest mining companies yep. in the world globally. So okay. If it invests, hold on. Here's another. <laughs> yeah, I, sorry, I just I think this is also worth to kind of put that in perspective. I mean, let's just let's think about that for a second, right? Here are the companies that find, develop, and produce uranium mines. Mm -hmm. uh, uranium from uranium mines. So you have, a, you know, almost a nominal market capitalization and value ascribed collectively to these all of these companies, right? Yeah, I think that would well, probably it, be. This is this is eleven percent of electricity generated globally so the fuel now there are yes there are private uh, and state-run companies but you know public companies right still account for significant amount of production globally but just think about that for a second here you have you know a meaningful amount of electricity production and generation on a global basis and the fuel for that a, a good chunk of that is within a handful of companies that you know are trading at um, you know depressed valuations due to you know all the previous things we've talked about and you know a low uranium price, um, and you know the, I, I can't understate the the significance of these companies going forward to be able to create uh, produce more uranium for growing demand in particular in places like China and India. These companies are needed production, more production is yeah. needed. Yet the market is ascribing a very, very low valuation to these companies. So that's where I see uh, the disconnect. I see this yeah, as... Well, I think an interesting way to look at that is a company like ExxonMobil, I think their exploration budget is on the order of a few five-plus billion dollars. Right. So the exploration project, rather budget, of one oil, oil company, company is exactly. is comparable to... The entire publicly the entire traded company, uranium market, exploration or development, but also production of uranium. Yeah. So that's it. You know, that's it. When when well, and as we see uranium playing a bigger and bigger role in global energy supply, yeah. that there's a there's some patching up. To yeah, there's an asymmetry there that is not not natural. And so, if an investor wants to get exposure to the Athabasca Basin, why are they going to invest in Sky Harbor as opposed to uh, the more established chemical right. at this point, or the post-discovery, uh, but pre-production next-gen. So sure. you're a discovery stage company. Why? What are the advantages in putting some money into a Sky Harbor as opposed to these uh, more established or at least further down the road bets? Right. Yeah, I mean, look, it's a different uh, investment 
proposition, uh, bottom line. You're investing in Sky Harbor. You're investing in, as you said, a discovery story. We provide, we offer investors exposure, not just to rising uranium prices. And I will note, as a junior company, as you know, we are we have offer a lot of torque and leverage to a rising uranium price. That's one of, course, of the, that's, yeah. that's, I think, a key talking point here. You know, Cameco is a big uranium company, and it will move significantly as the price uranium uh, moves up. Uh, but the opportunity for those multiples return of return, that's what you get in the junior companies, right? You get that torque, you get the leverage. So that's direct exposure to the commodity price itself. But getting back specifically to Sky Harbor and differentiating it from the larger cap companies, right? It offers investors uh, exposure to that next big discovery in the Athabasca Basin, discovery upside potential. And that, as we've seen with NextGen, with Fission, with Hathor, and with many other exploration discovery stories and other metals, can create a lot of value in a very short period of time. Now, it is high risk, high return, right? But we, um, we view that that's, it's our, that's our expertise. Our bread and butter is in that specific part of a mining company's life cycle. And we view that as, um, I think, from a risk-reward profile, there's ways you can mitigate the risk. You can never guarantee exploration success or yep. new discovery, but there are ways you can improve the chances and probability of that. So, so and what mitigate it, the risk. And, and we do a number of things to do that. So on that note, what is Guy Harbor doing now? What are the plans going forward? And what can investors expect to see out of Sky Harbor over the coming year? Yeah, so I'll maybe just start with a very high level of Sky Harbor. So we, yes. we haven't really talked specifically uh, as much about the company. So Sky Harbor, it's a high-grade uranium exploration uh, and early-stage development company. Um, we've acquired five projects scattered throughout the Athabasca Basin, um, both on the west side and the infrastructure-rich east side of the Athabasca Basin, um, about... 200,000 hectares of, of land, uh, call it a, a half a million acres uh, of land uh, throughout these five projects. Um, they're at various stages of exploration. Uh, so we have our flagship project, which is called the Moore Project, project we acquired from Denison uh, about uh, just over a year and a half ago. Uh, and I'll note that Denison Mines, which is a New York listed company, one of the larger uranium companies by market cap yep. out there, Lucas Lundin Company, the president and CEO, uh, Dave Cates, uh, who runs Denison, he's on Sky Harbor's board. Uh, Denison Mines is Sky Harbor's largest shareholder. They own about 10% of Sky Harbor. So a very close working relationship with a larger company like Denison. A strategic partnership with them uh, at the project level, at the project level, and at the uh, as a as a large shareholder, that's an important part of our story. But getting back to the flagship, more it was a project we acquired from Denison. Uh, Denison does retain a buyback option on the project, so if we have success uh, and it goes into a development stage, they would likely be the company to develop it and to to, to ultimately uh, build a mine. Yeah, uh, but. It's at an uh, advanced exploration stage right now. Um, we, there's high-grade uranium at the project. That was discovered years ago, actually, by my head geologist, Rick Kazmersky. I can talk a little bit more about Rick's history. And was afterwards. he working for Denison at the time so or a different company? So Rick's, um, Rick's history, uh, he is 
you know, I consider him to be one of the top uranium exploration geologists uh, in the in the Athabasca Basin. He's been working there for the better part of his career, 40 years. Uh, he was the exploration manager at Cameco, world's largest publicly traded uranium company, for a number of years. He left Cameco, started his own junior uranium company called JNR. Uh, and this is important because Rick started it in a tough market, much like we did with Sky Harbor in 1999-2000 when he started running the company. He went in there, made a high-grade discovery at Moore, the, the, took the company from five, six cents, hit a high of over four dollars uh, in 2006-2007. A lot of that on the back of that discovery made at Moore and the high-grade mineralization they found there. And then he ultimately sold JNR to Denison. So it's kind of come full circle now where Rick, as Sky Harbor's head geologist, working uh, back at the Moore Project, uh, and Denison is Sky Harbor's largest shareholder. So he's been a believer in this project for, what, getting on 30 years now? Exactly. Is that right? And there's a, we could spend a long time on Moore. Um, it was a project we had in our crosshairs uh, almost from day one, uh, hoping we could yeah. get our hands on it eventually. Obviously, Rick's history um, on the project was a big part of, of, of getting the deal done. But I will note uh, one of the things that the project was... Um, in our in our view, um, attractive in Sky Harbor's portfolio. One of the main reasons for that was the fact that they made the high grade discovery there. So it's a, it's a high grade shallow uh, pod of uranium called uh, at what's called the, the the main Maverick zone. So there's a four kilometer long conductive corridor. So when you look for uranium, you're looking on these uh, usually on these graphitic conductors, right? Uh, and there's a, a, a whole science behind it. There's, you know, it's 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 not, um, you know, call it treasure hunting. There's a lot that goes into actually yep. finding these 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 resources and these deposits. But what we have at at Moore is this, uh, and this is at the main zone, um, four kilometer long corridor. Only two kilometers of it have been systematically drilled. So there's another two kilometers that we'd like to go out and test. We think there's a lot more uranium to be found there. But when they found the high-grade zone in the early 2000s, they were drilling relatively shallow, about 250 to 300 meters, um, and the, the mineralization is found at and around what's called the unconformity. And I won't get into too much technical or geological lingo, um, but these high-grade deposits in the Athabasca Basin, you have the sandstone uh, above, you have the contact with the sandstone and the basement rock, and that contact is called the unconformity. And you hear this term used a lot uh, in the Athabasca Basin. Yeah. And that's where you find you find deposits either in the sandstone, at the unconformity, or in the basement rock. So, and just to put that into perspective, this is similar to the environment that NextGen has found their aero deposit in. Is that correct? Yeah, so uh, the aero deposit's a basement-hosted deposit. Uh, and okay. getting back to more, one of the intriguing parts about more for us is that a lot of that historical exploration that Rick and his team carried out was only looking for high-grade uranium in the, in the sandstone or at or around right. the unconformity. They did not drill much deeper into the basement rock. And at the time, it was thought that there would that, be no uranium that was, yeah, in the basement, that was right? The, that was the prevailing thought and uh, theory on the basin. Um, you look at a lot of the historical exploration uh, and a lot of the historical discoveries that were made, they were just looking in the sandstone or at the unconformity. It hasn't really been until recently we've had these major discoveries by NextGen, by Fission, uh, Griffin deposit, which is also basement hosted, uh, that the potential in the basement rocks has really 
uh, come through and that companies are spending more actually looking in the basement rock. And there's a lot of benefits to having a basement hosted deposit versus a sandstone or informally hosted deposit. The rock is much more competent. So when you actually go to mine it, in theory it's going to be easier to mine. Um, but this is where the uranium, the uranium's come up from below, right? right? And so that's where you get these high grade deposits is in these structures. The fluid's moving up, being deposited in these structures. It has an affinity for graphite. Uh, is a reductant, and so you get these graphitic structures. You want to see reactivation, you want to see uh, breaks, flexures, faults in these structures, cross-cutting features, and that's where you get more reactivation, more fluids coming up, and that's what creates these very high-grade deposits, very unique to the Athabasca Basin. And the understanding and the science behind that is really only developed in the recent... Yeah, it, I mean, there's always... It, it, I'd say it's got more traction, um, right? And that's but that's important, right? It's not now just drill to the unconformity in the sandstone and stop. Now it's no. We have we have to look deeper. We have to look for potentially higher grade, larger deposits in the basement rock. And some of the highest grade and largest deposits in the basement, uh, in the basin, are basement hosted. And so, getting back to more, that is one of the things, one of the strategies, drilling strategies that we're going to continue to pursue, looking for deeper, higher grade deposits. We know we have high grade uh, shallow pods uh, at the unconformity, but there's a strong likelihood we can find bigger, deeper deposits, higher grade deposits by drilling in the basement rock. So do you have an exploration program planned this summer for more? Yeah, so we drilled, uh, since acquiring the project, and uh, we drilled just under 10,000 meters um, on the project in 2017, a summer and a winter drill program. Yep. We had success with both of those programs, some of the highlight drill holes. Uh, one of the drill holes returned 21% U308 over a meter and a half. That was within 6% over 6 meters, again, at about 250, 260 meters, so relatively shallow. Mm -hmm. That was that, that main maverick zone, so the four kilometers two kilometers of which uh, has been drill tested. But even within that two kilometers, right, we're talking now, you know, a few hundred meters, that's this, call it main maverick zone. So that's where we had that drill result from. And then we, what we did is we actually drilled about a hundred meters step out uh, from the main maverick zone and we hit 9%, just over 9% U308 over about a meter and a half uh, in a step out uh, hole, which we have now, it's a new discovery, new zone that we call the East Maverick Zone. Okay. Uh, you gotta remember these are high grades, they're low yep. tonnage deposits, right? Um, and uh, that, was, uh, that was a very interesting finding because that was actually between two drill fences that were mineralized, right? But the very high grade core we found by going back and reinterpreting and reanalyzing the geochem and historical drill results and then going in and saying, okay, uh, yes, we gotta drill between those fences of mineralized holes. And that's something that's worked well uh, in the drilling that we've carried out since acquiring the project, and we'll continue doing that. There's been a lot of historical drilling. There's been a lot of work there. But again, it's been very focused on a specific strategy. And we've now gone back, and we're, we're going at the exploration of drilling in, uh, with a new look, kind of a new lens, and that's yielded new discoveries yeah. and new high-grade mineralization already. So, so how do you tie these sort of lower volume high grade pods together into something that can be a deposit that's worth mining and worth developing yeah so i mean look there's there's um lots of historical production out of the basin that's been from these low uh these shallow high grade but small pots right, right. um and 
what we would ultimately like to find, much like NextGen has, Fission has, Hathor did, is a larger, higher-grade, bigger deposit. And we do believe uh, that it's there. We The geological potential uh, is there on the project. And this is why you're entering the basement, Rob, now. A- exactly. That's one of the areas we think we have the potential of finding that bigger 50, 100-plus million pound deposit at more. But... That's not to discredit the smaller high-grade pods that we're finding along strike shallow, right? Because if you find enough of those, those pounds add up. And I'll note there's been uh, new techniques being developed, mining methods being developed. Uh, There's one called Sabre, which is a a joint venture between Arriva, well, Arano, uh, and Denison. So two partner companies of ours, I, I haven't mentioned yet, we do have yeah. a uh, partnership with uh, with Arriva, Arano uh, now, at the project level on the, on the west side of the basin, but they're developing Sabre, a uh, new mining technique called Sabre, which and is... So who's Arriva for those that don't yeah, know? Yeah, okay, so um, Arriva, which has been recently renamed Arano, is uh, France's largest nuclear uranium mining company. Mm-hmm. Um, very large state-owned uh, enterprise Prize. Uh, it's been around for a long time, employ many thousands of people globally. Um, and, and what's their relationship with Sky Harbor? Yeah, so we did a deal with um, Arano, uh, well, Arriva then, Arano now, uh, about a year, just over a year ago, where they're coming in and uh, and in an option agreement, acquiring 70% of one of our other projects, a secondary project we have called Preston over by Fission and NextGen's project on the west side of the basin for uh, a, a total combined 8 million in cash and exploration expenditures uh, to earn up to 70%. So I'll talk, I'll quickly talk about that after, but just to finish off on uh, these high-grade pods at Moore, um, there are new techniques being developed that you could look at potentially mining these small, shallow, high-grade pods uh, at a very low development cost or a lower development cost and uh, much easier to permit uh, and and much uh, lower environmental, less environmental impact because you're basically, you're not building a mine. Uh, you're actually, in this case, looking at uh, simply drilling a borehole down, jet boring it, which is how they mine MacArthur and Cigar, and then yeah. pumping that high-grade uranium and water mixture up to surface. So you're basically pulling all the uranium out of a hole that's, what, a few inches across? Uh, or a couple meters. A couple yeah. meters across. Um, yeah. So the impact of this is almost imperceptible if you were going to drive by there's yeah. there's no more uh, shafts being sunk down. Yeah. There's no open pit there's pulling out these pods. So that needs to go into the actual mine. You're simply just hydrating these pods. And I think the the importance of that is critical to note, just because as you were saying earlier, the permitting process for uranium mining is one of the most difficult and time consuming parts of the whole ordeal. So right. if this if this can minimize the the environmental impact, uh, then the potential to cut down on permitting times is probably huge. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, I, I, I want to. I do want to talk kind of the second um, key pillar of of Sky Harbor strategy and catalyst coming up. But just to finish off uh, with the high grade discovery potential at Moore, we drilled there last year, had success. We're just wrapping up our winter drill program this year, so we'll have results out shortly yep. on that. Uh, more drilling at that main Maverick corridor and and high grade zone uh, zones. Uh, but the project's a big project, 36,000 hectares. There's other target areas that will be that we have and will be drill testing going forward. One of the main catalysts for the company at that project coming up is a summer drill program, which will likely commence in August. So we'll be going back in. And as I said, the strategy there is looking 
uh, continuing to drill along strike. We've we found additional high-grade pods and lenses along strike. We'll continue doing that relatively shallow depths. But again, we think there's larger deposits potentially in the basement rock, really haven't, hasn't been tested with the historical drilling and exploration that we'd like to test with future drilling. And again, that's just at that one Maverick corridor. There's a handful of other conductive corridors on the project that have had drilling in the past that are mineralized, just haven't had the necessary follow-up work, which we can look to do. Okay. Now what's the next pillar? Yeah, so... Um, um, we have the high-grade discovery potential, and that's predominantly focused at more the flagship project. But Sky Harbor has these other projects that we've acquired over the last four and a half, five years. As I mentioned, Arriva and Alorano uh, earning in up to 70% on our Preston project. Well, this is a part of our prospect generator strategy or model. You've heard that term used a lot in, yes. in mineral exploration industry, and it's a, it's a very... Um, uh, effective uh, way to run a mineral exploration uh, and junior mining company. Um, you go out there, you utilize and leverage your technical expertise, your team's technical expertise to basically advance mineral properties uh, and exploration properties to a stage where another partner company is going to come in, hopefully a strategic or larger partner is going to come in and fund the exploration. You option or sell them up to a certain interest. Maybe it's a 60, 70, 80% majority interest. You, so you retain a minority interest. You retain some upside if they make a discovery, if they have success in the field. You also, but, but they're the ones funding the work right? Uh, and you usually get cash and stock payments as well. So we actually, in this case for Sky Harbor, employing the prospect generator um, strategy, uh, utilizing that as we do on our other projects outside of more, we were looking actively and have brought in strategic partners, including Arano and another company called Azincourt to earn in on these projects. Uh, they fund the exploration, we get some cash and stock from the company. So just a uh, uh, summarize the, the, the two transactions we've consummated thus far. Uh, Arano has come in on an $8 million deal up to turn in up to 70%, $7.3 million in exploration over a six-year period. They're just finishing their first drill program at Preston, so we will benefit uh, from news flow from that project and that yep. exploration over the coming years as well. And then as in court, uh, a similar deal, they can earn uh, 70% of what's called the East Preston Project. It's adjacent to where Arriva uh, is um, uh, working right now at Preston. They have to spend two and a half million in exploration, a million dollars in cash payments, and they've issued some shares as well. And so you basically get exposure to the upside of both these deposits without having to spend any money Correct. or do any work. And that's a getting back to you know the high risk, high return nature of an exploration discovery story. Prospect generation is a way to mitigate some of that risk. Yes, you only you only get the thirty or forty percent retained interest, but the bottom line is is that going out and having to raise money and dilute right uh, the mm -hmm. current shareholder base, um, you have to raise a lot of money to actively explore these projects. Uh, and so, if you want to retain a hundred percent or a majority, and you want to fund that exploration to advance and advance projects and create value. Uh, it can be very dilutive. So this is a way to bring in partner companies. And look, 30 or 40% or 20% of a big discovery is a hell of a lot better than 100% of nothing. And well, in a lot of ways, you're getting the best of both worlds with Sky Harbor and that you've got this hedge to risk by employing the prospect generator model on two of your deposits, whilst you own 100% or more, 
and are able to devote your financial attention as well as your technical attention to that project absolutely. and get the totality of the upside when that comes through. Absolutely. And that's a, you know, that's a great way of of summarizing it. And just to kind of wrap up here, I would like to um, talk quickly about the, the team at Sky Harbor. Yeah, we've talked please. a lot about the projects, talked a lot about the uranium market. Um, I think we've covered the salient points. Um, but, uh, you know, the key ingredient for success for any of these companies is the team behind it, right? And that's been, you know, a big thing for me in my career is, you know, working with good people, knowledgeable people. Uh, as you know, this is an ever-changing industry. Um, you know, one of the things I, I think that I've been able to do you know, decently well, and I continue to strive to do is you always want to be learning. You want to put you want to put yourself um, and and in a position where you're working with great people that know the industry. You can learn from them. You can leverage their expertise, utilize their expertise, and that was really the first thing we focused on at Sky Harbor after we knew we were going to become, become a uranium company in the Athabasca Basin. How do we put together? a top-notch team. So myself and Jim at the time went out um, and uh, we brought on Rick Kazmersky, who I've talked about, uh, head geologist. Uh, his nickname is actually Radioactive Rick. He's found a lot of uranium. And so that's he's, just a lifetime and, focused on uranium yeah, exploration. And he knows, he knows the basin inside out. He's worked with the biggest companies. He's built and sold his own company and he's found a lot of uranium. And, um, you know, we, we see that trend continuing with Sky Harbor. Uh, we have Dave Cates as a director who, as I mentioned, is the president CEO of uh, not just Denison, but Uranium Participation Corp. They just uh, actually announced a, a $20 million bought deal, which will be coming into the spot market. Uh, that's what your, uh, UPC Uranium Participation Corp does is they, uh, they buy directly, uh, buy uranium directly, um, U308 and, and UF6. And uh, so Dave and his team um, at Denison, again, like I said, very close working relationship. They have a phenomenal team. Uh, and again, their focus is in the Athabasca Basin, uh, developing uh, the, the, the Wheeler project, uh, the, the Phoenix Griffin deposit. So, you know, Dave coming in as... Uh, a director. Uh, he's in a very important part of the team and Denison uh, is our largest shareholder. And so then do you have a lot of active communication with Denison? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And- uh, at more, got to remember Denison acquired JNR, acquired the more project from Rick's right. team, right? At, at JNR, when they bought JNR, Denison's done a lot of exploration, a uh, fair bit of exploration on the more project in, in those interim years, uh, between that, uh, when they acquired JNR, and when we Sky Harbor acquired more from Denison, so yes, we are consulting with them. We're um, uh, open uh, communication all the time with them on what we're doing, how we're doing it, ideas, and that's important, right? I mean, as a small company, we'll have only so many geologists that we can employ that we right. can bring on, right? So having that open door to the technical expertise that a larger company like Denison has is a huge benefit for Sky Harbor. Well, something a lot of people don't think about um, in starting a company in a horrible market is that you actually get access to very good people. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you started your company in one of the worst markets in one of the worst hit commodities. And so there's a wealth of information, a wealth of technical and financial ability that isn't isn't employed anywhere else and isn't being utilized. So you're able to pick them up when in a in a hot market, you know, they might have a hundred job offers and might not uh, absolutely be available. And that's you know, it's not just um, a consolidation of top tier projects in a bear market. 
Um, it's a consolidation of top tier uh, uh, technical people, managers, capital markets uh, people. So you're able to put you know the best teams together in place to go out and execute on the business plan. And I think people underestimate the value of that. Um, and the value of intellectual capital in mm -hmm. the mining industry and how crucial that is. I mean, I remember in the last uh, the last bull market, anyone that had a geology degree, anyone that knew anything about mining was having half a dozen job offers thrown at them for yeah. three times what they would have gotten paid today or five years before that. So yeah. the actual ability to acquire this team and to have a track record of working together on a deposit is is rare and incredibly valuable. Yeah, and you look at you know one of our strategic advisors, Paul Matizic. He's built and sold five mining companies now in the last twelve years. His biggest win being the uranium company, uh, which uh, he sold to Uranium One in two thousand seven uh, for one point eight billion dollars. Uh, and it's not just the team; it's also I'll just quickly note the shareholder base too. Uh, one of the the great things with Scott Harbor, uh, as we you know we do have a very strong loyal shareholder base. Um, uh, Insiders and management collectively own about 18% uh, of the company. We have a lot of skin in the game, right? We believe in what we're doing. We believe in the process. We believe in the end game and the exit strategy. Look, we, like what we did with Bayfield, are looking ultimately to prove up what we can on the projects, advance the projects, whether it's through our own drilling or partners coming in. And ultimately, we would like to be acquired. That's you know that's the payday at the end of the day for a lot of these junior miners, right? Larger company coming in. Um, and looking at the shareholder base outside of the management and insiders, uh, you have a couple of kind of key cornerstone investors. Uh, one being Marin Catuza and his fund, uh, the KCR fund, uh, very large shareholder, has been since day one. Uh, mentor of mine, um, well-known name in the industry. Um, there's been a couple of uh, funds recently that have come in uh, as well, and that that's worth noting is that recent raises that we've done, we've seen a little more institutional interest, which, given the you know market cap of the company, is is I think you know quite unique. Yeah. One of our larger shareholders, KS Investments, out of China. We have OTP Bank out of Hungary. Uh, we have a, a handful of uh, resource funds in Canada, in the U.S., and in other parts of Europe that have participated in financings. Uh, Jeff Phillips uh, down in San Diego. Uh, there's a handful of other, you know, family office um, that uh, family offices and, and and high net worth investors uh, that have that have come in. And I, I think that that's that's important to note, along obviously with the team running the company is being able to attract money from um, sophisticated investors, institutional investors at a relatively early stage uh, and knowing, and they understand, they understand the uranium market, they understand what we're doing. Uh, they've been strong, loyal shareholders for uh, a while and, and um, I think we're going to see um, over the coming years with what we're doing in the field, the drilling, um, that we're doing it more. Uh, the plans that we have, the plans that our partners have at our other projects, Arano, Asincourt, and hoping to consummate additional uh, deals with other partners on some of the other projects. Falcon Point, we own 100% of. Murchison, we own 100% of. Man Lake, we own 100% of. Falcon Point, uh, <laughs> just quickly to finish off with the other projects, Falcon Point does have a 43101 resource on it, and we like to find a partner to come in there on that uh, and looking for that. But... Um, I think with everything that we have planned, the catalysts, um, 
and the projects and the team that we have, the shareholder base we have, I think we're poised for success, especially as we see uh, a rising uranium market over the coming years. Okay, I'm going to try to summarize that in one <laughs> sentence. So Sky Harbor has an experienced, uh, driven management team. With both his expertise in the base. You're well-financed. You have shareholders that understand the story and are supportive. You have multiple assets and very established partners, and you have a clear exploration program and uh, value creation program for this summer and then the coming years ahead. Absolutely. And you're in a market that we at Capitalist Exploits are, are very bullish on. And I mean, anyone that can do simple math should have an idea that uranium has to go up. So I want to be respectful of your time and not take up any more, but if people want to learn more about Sky Harbor, where should they look? Yeah, so the website's a great starting point, right? Uh, www.skyharborltd.com. I'm very accessible. Um, as a CEO, I, you know, I implore people to reach out to, to myself or my investor relations manager, Nick Findler. Uh, we're easy to get a hold of. I'm more than happy to take calls, um, chat with anyone about the uranium market, about Sky Harbor, about our plans. So what's your personal cell phone number so I can send it out to everyone? <laughs> they want to call me. I can give it out. Uh, no, I, I, it's, I, look, send me an email at jtrimble at skyharborltd.com. Um, you can reach me on my cell, 604. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's save that uh, one. Yeah, we, let's look, save that one for an email. I'm, I, I have my cell in my signature in my email, so feel free to uh, send me an email. Um, uh, check the website out um, and uh, you know the PowerPoint and interviews we do and, and news releases. And if people want to learn more about uranium, is there any resources you'd recommend or anyone talking about the space that you would want to... Uh, you look, there, there are, I mean, it's not like copper or gold or oil. It's not, it's a niche market. Um, it can be a relatively, it is a relatively opaque market, but there are good sources of information. I mean, the companies in the space know the space well. Um, you have uh, WNA, uh, you have UXC, you have a number of sources of, of, uh, of information in the industry that are, are good. Um, but, you know, there is... Um, you know, there is a bit of a disconnect between, call it, the mining part of the industry and the nuclear right. uh, uh, industry, right? So you have the uranium mining and the nuclear industry. And so um, if you want information on uranium mining, um, you know, I'd be looking at the companies. There's a couple of analysts that cover the space. Um, and, um, uh, you, you know, they're, they're all relatively accessible. So... Uh, again, I implore people to go and, and you know always do your own due diligence, right? Um, but um, it's uh, it's an interesting space. It's unique, uh, and as I said, I really do think it's it's um, uh, a real unprecedented contrarian opportunity. And um, you know, as a junior company, we do offer not just the high grade discovery potential company specific catalysts. We do offer leverage to a rising uranium price. All right. I think we'll leave it there. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us today, Jordan. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. If you're interested in getting access to the biggest deals and best opportunities in the mining and metals industry, go to capitalistexploits.at and sign up for Resource Insider now.